Shelley Schlender. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, April 19th, 2016. Coming up, we speak with renowned ornithologist Tim Burkhead about The Most Perfect Thing. That's the title of his new book. It's all about taking a scientific look inside and outside a bird's egg. We don't really know, but there are special cells that um, secrete or make the colors. Then the color is squirted onto the egg, and I liken it to a set of spray guns. And there must be lots and lots of different spray guns. You're tuned to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Shelley Schlender, and today we have a special show in honor of spring. And birds around the area nesting, and how they're laying their eggs here and around the world. Our guest today is renowned ornithologist Tim Burkhead. Burkhead teaches animal behavior and the history of science at the University of Sheffield, England. His newest book is just now available. It's called The Most Perfect Thing. We spoke with him in Europe via Skype. All right, Tim Burkhead, your book, The Most Perfect Thing, is coming at just the right time to be for spring and for Earth Day. And you inspired me, because of your book, to put an egg in vinegar. And right now I'm going to pour out the vinegar just a sec. Okay, it's very scummy. It's got some scummy brown on it because the egg was brown. Now I have this egg that's kind of... Uh, I think one word would do it, repulsive. They're rather (laughs) squidgy to hold up. They're rather remarkable. Um, And basically what you've done by putting that uh, egg in the vinegar is to reverse the shell formation process. So what we're left with now is the egg um, bound simply by what's called the egg membrane. And it's on that egg membrane that the calcium is deposited when the shell is, is being formed in the female's oviduct. That's one thing that was fascinating about your book, The Most Perfect Thing, is all of these observations that are not that hard to do, of course, unless you are doing the part with the electron microscopes, but just some of the experiments a person can do at home, like this egg that I'm holding. The amazing thing to me is that it doesn't have the calcium on it. It is repulsively squishy, but it looks like an egg. It looks like a chicken egg. It's the right shape. Absolutely. I think that that's one of the most remarkable things about that very simple um, do-it-yourself experiment is that removing the calcium, you demonstrate that the shape of the egg is formed before the shell is put on. And I'd always had it in my mind that it was the shell itself, the formation of the shell that dictated the shape of the egg. And in fact, it's that membrane. And interestingly, this is one of the least known bits of egg production biology that um, uh, we know about. They think that the portion of the oviduct, it's called the the uterus in a bird, but it's not quite analogous to that in a human, is rather constricted at one end, which is what tends to give the egg a slightly pointed end at one end. Uh, But we really know very little about this. Well, we know very little about it, but I know a lot more about it because I read your book, The Most Perfect Thing, which is talking about the perfect shape of an egg and how... It starts out as kind of this squiggly little teeny tiny bit of yolk and fertilized egg. And it gets squished into this place called the oviduct in this kind of membrane stuff that's around it. And then the bird starts 
adding in things that this egg will need to live. You know, it squirts in more liquid. It's it, what what all does it squirt in there? Well, in fact, I mean, you say you say that it starts off as a tiny thing. In fact, birds' eggs, strictly speaking, the word is over or ovum. If you're talking about one of them, are quite big because they're full of yolk. So, uh, if I had a, for example, if I had a human ovum on my fingertip here, it would look like a full stop. It's tiny. A bird's egg, chicken's egg. Uh, the ovum is, you know, uh, four, three or four centimeters across because it's full of yolk. Help me with inches here, just in case. That is about uh, as wide as a pencil. No, no, um, be about one and a half inches across the yolk. Okay, so that's like a grape. Yeah, oh, bigger than a grape. Bigger than a grape, depending on the bird, like a, of course. A golf ball would be, that's the, that's the cell. That's the female egg cell is the same size in a chicken as a golf ball. Of course, in bigger birds, it's bigger. In an ostrich, it would be um, yeah, much, much bigger than a tennis ball even. Uh, but there's a pale spot on that yolk, and that's, that's the kind of business bit of, of the ovum. Okay, and so there's this yolk that gets squirted isn't the right word, but it kind of sends into the uterus area. And yeah. from there, it's in the membrane, and the membrane is expandable like a balloon. Okay, it's not, it's not, that's not quite right. Okay. The membrane isn't there yet. So what happens is you've got the ovum in the ovary, which looks like a bunch of different sized grapes. At one point, one of those um, grapes splits and the ovum is, is dropped out and it's engulfed by the infundibulum, the very tip of the oviduct, and it kind of swarms around it. And then fertilization takes place in 15 minutes, and then the egg begins its journey down the oviduct. Within four or five hours, a thin, very dense layer of albumin, what we call the white, is laid down around the yolk. And it isn't until about another two or three hours after that that the um, ovum now surrounded by the white reaches the uterus, which is where that membrane that you're holding um, is going to be put on. Okay, so a lot of stuff is put in there and then it's surrounded by the membrane and then it gets the calcium around it. But you just reminded me of something else. So I also brought just a regular egg that hasn't been deposited in vinegar so that it lost uh -huh. its calcium. So get ready. I'm cracking it. Okay. I'm looking at it now. There's this egg yolk from a chicken egg, and then there's this stuff you call albumin, which is just a clear liquid. It looks, it looks like goo is what it looks yep. like. I'm trying to avoid other more disgusting names for it. <laughs> but you say that it serves a lot of different purposes, including to protect the egg when it's being incubated from microbes going in to eat the yolk. Yeah, well, to eat, to eat the embryo specifically, really, they would microbes eat the yolk as well, but it's the embryo they would be after. And that albumin is remarkable stuff. It's, you know, if you have a boiled egg, it's the bit that people like least. Um, but it provides the growing embryo with a supply of water, because it's mostly water, but uh, it's also got some protein in there. And those proteins help to protect the egg from any invading microbes. And of course, when the embryo um, is developing, it has to respire, it has to pull oxygen in, it has to release carbon dioxide and water vapor out. So the eggshell is now, now full let's of... stop for just a second here, because most people don't know that either. If I look at this eggshell here, my eyes aren't good enough to see that it has holes in it called pores. On the chicken egg, they're probably too small for you to see. But on a bigger egg, something like an ostrich, they're all too apparent. They're very clear. 
And, and those holes, those pores, as I say, allow the oxygen to come in and carbon dioxide and water vapor to be released. Because as the embryo is respiring and growing, it's releasing both of those two products. So they've got to get out somehow. I didn't know that eggs breathe. The embryo breathes. The egg doesn't breathe very much until the embryo is perhaps a few days old. Um, it does breathe a little bit before that, but as the embryo gets bigger, um, it's doing a lot of breathing. And so all of our birds in Colorado and where you are in England, around the world, and, and is it England or are you Wales? What should I say properly? <laughs> no, no I, I, live, I live in England. I'm currently in Spain, but I do research in Wales. <laughs> Okay, well, anyway, so there you are on the other side of the pond. A lot of places birds are starting to lay eggs, and this is happening everywhere where they're laying eggs that have teeny tiny holes in them that are needed to bring in oxygen and let out carbon dioxide. And at the same time, they don't want to let microbes in. When I was a kid, I lived on a game refuge. We kids would collect rotten eggs and throw them at each other. A rotten egg is really appallingly rotten. It is pretty disgusting, yeah. The egg might rot for several different reasons. I mean, um, it could be that the egg, if it's chicken egg, has been cracked with a hairline crack whilst it's in transport, and that will allow microbes in. Sometimes the chickens themselves have microbes in their body, which are then transmitted directly into the yolk. That can cause problems. But also the pores themselves um, can act as a conduit, especially if the egg gets wet and dirty. I would think that if an egg is dirty, the best thing to do is wash it off. And yet you very clearly explain all kinds of birds that lay their eggs in filth. And the reason that they are protected is because they never get wet. And so if you wash an egg like that, you almost guarantee it's going to be filled with microbial goo. Exactly. And I mean, if you, if you wash a, a dirty egg and then just leave it to dry as the liquid on the surface evaporates, it, it is drawn into the pore. So you're actually helping uh, any microbes. Now, the really interesting thing about the albumin is that it acts as a succession of vast barriers to those microbes. And I think the most amazing one is that there's nothing in albumin that microbes can use. So it's, I liken it to a kind of trying to cross the desert with no supplies of water or food. And I think that's remarkable. It's a very uh, efficient way of dealing with the microbe problem. Yes, and as I look at this egg that has we have cracked here for me in Colorado, and that clear stuff that will cook to be egg white. You say it's full of these armies ready to defend the yolk. So it's kind of like going across that desert of no food that's loaded with minefields for microbes. The albumin uh, contains no nutrients that the microbes could use, but it contains lots of antimicrobial proteins, which are there to defend uh, the developing embryo from those kind of microbes. And as our techniques for detecting uh, different kinds of proteins become more and more sophisticated, more and more uh, antimicrobial proteins have been discovered in egg white. And again, as I, as I say in the book, I mean, egg white is pretty unstudied, really. You know, there are those different, um, I don't know that you can see them in your egg, but there are different um, thicknesses of white. There are. Um, I can see there's the watery part. There's that's the, right. And then there's the thicker part closer to the yolk. And then there's kind of a little rim closer to the 
yolk that's just a little different. You you describe that in your book, and here it is in my yep. cracked egg. I've talked to a lot of poultry biologists about this who you would think should know this, but nobody knows what the function of those different types of albumin are. So that's a mystery. But in your book, Tim Burke had the most perfect thing, which means an egg. Uh, you do mention that there's probably over 100 different kinds of antimicrobial agents, basically antibiotics and antifungicides, whatever. It's got all of those. And this also, on a side light, kind of answered a mystery for me because eggs cause a lot of allergies in people. There's some people who have trouble eating eggs, and one hypothesis among the physiologists who study it is that there's so much antimicrobial defense in an egg that it makes it harder to digest than people realize. And so some people really do have trouble digesting eggs, and some people it may be something that leads to leaky gut. Because yeah. um, I'll bet that you love eggs. I shouldn't be telling you this. <laughs> <laughs> I love eggs to eat, and I love studying eggs, yes. Yes, and so most, most people it's not a problem, but, but it is one reason why a nature-oriented or a physiological-oriented medical person may suggest somebody with allergies or autoimmune conditions might avoid eggs because sure and of course you know if, if there's any risk that that egg could contain microbial uh, substances like salmonella then obviously avoding that at all costs is, is essential sure so there's the side of an egg can get infected it can start to be rotten but also the egg has powerful defenses to reduce the chance that its worst enemy which is not really us its worst enemy is the microbes would get to the egg yolk and make it rotten Absolutely. And that, that risk varies quite a lot um, depending on where the bird that's producing the egg is breeding. So in temperate climates, like certainly like England, um, it's never too hot or muggy for microbes to be a serious problem. Uh, but in the tropics, where it's often very humid and very warm, those microbes can be a very serious problem. And that seems to explain something very um, interesting about birds. So in, the, in temperate regions, something like a, um, a, a blue tea, you call it a chickadee, um, lays one egg a day and it doesn't start incubating until the last egg, which might be 16 eggs, uh, is laid. And those eggs can sit safe from microbes inside the nest until incubation starts, and then they start to develop. But in the tropics, uh, birds very rarely leave their eggs unattended in that kind of way and usually start incubating the day they're laid. And it's thought that as the egg is warmed up, the antimicrobial proteins work even better. Now, the reason we know that the tropical bird species are more vulnerable is if you do a very simple experiment and leave eggs um, unincubated, as the chickadee in, in England would do, then they invariably become infected with either um, microbes or fungi and die. Well, that's not good for the egg, then, if they die. No. Temperature makes a difference, but you also, in your book, The Most Perfect Thing, Tim Burkhead, you talk about how Amazingly, the best temperature, for instance, for the antimicrobials, these proteins in the egg white to work, is basically our inner temperature, the temperature of humans. And um, it turns out that when a mother bird is sitting on her eggs, she either puts part of her skin right next to them to keep them warm, or if it's a really tiny bird, she uses her legs, and her legs even turn red to help the eggs stay warm. And it's basically, one of the reasons is because that keeps those antimicrobials at the best temperature for fighting 
against invaders. But it also does something called making the egg turn into a baby chick. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and the embryo has to, has to be warmed. It speeds up the um, developmental process. Of course, um, things like lizards and, and snakes and reptiles, other reptiles, um, don't have what we call contact incubation. They just dump their eggs somewhere and allow the temperature of the sun or whatever to, to warm them. But their eggs take a long time to hatch. The beauty of having contact incubation is that it means that the bird has some control over the length of time it takes for those eggs to fully develop and hatch. Lots of things going on, and I didn't realize that one thing about this egg white is it's not only a defensive part, this clear part of the egg, but as part of developing into a baby bird, that egg yolk starts sending blood vessels into it to extract the resources back out of it. I mean, there's all kinds of fascinating things about <laughs> this, this egg here that I've cracked open. That's why it's the most perfect thing. It is the most remarkable product of natural selection. And I think one of the really exciting things is that there's a series of blood vessels which are analogous in a way to a placenta that develop um, right at the edge of the yolk up against the shell and that's riddled with blood vessels. So if your egg that you'd opened had been incubated for two or three days, you'd start to see those blood vessels and it's the oxygen coming into the egg through the pores that then is absorbed into the blood through those blood vessels, which is then transported to the developing embryo. And of course, then in reverse, the embryo is releasing carbon dioxide and water vapor and it goes out the other way. Wow, there's just a lot going on in this seemingly simple thing, an egg. I'm going to go back to the egg that we vinegared with your experiment where you say anybody at home can put an egg in vinegar and end up with this disgusting thing without the calcium on it. Well, I chose an egg that was a chicken egg that was brown, and I've got a lot of scum on the top of the vinegar that is the scum of the color brown that was yep. surrounding this kind of wobbly egg now. We've been talking about eggs in general that apply to any eggs, but you study a certain kind of egg especially, very passionately, with a bird that I, I listened to how to pronounce its name. And there's an English pronunciation, and then there's an American pronunciation. I think it's Guillemot. Yeah. How do you say it? Guillemot. Well, that's English and American for you. And you call it a mur. Okay, it's a mur. Okay, when I looked at pictures of it, it looks to me like a black seagull with white patches. More or less. More yes. or less. It looks, or like, less. it looks like a little penguin, but it can fly. Yeah, you know, it, it doesn't wobble like a penguin. It's it's a little bit more sleek. It's kind of penguiny yes. seagully. And it is a bird that is in a few places in North America. It's not in Colorado. I, I don't no. think I've ever seen no. a guillemot no. in Colorado. No, no. You have to be on the coast and um, northern rather than southern. Yeah. Well, and, and you have to be on the coast where there are cliffs and not only cliffs, but places where Birds can crowd on the cliffs, and that's where you see the guillemots, is on cliffs where there aren't even nests. They just lay their very strange eggs right on the cliff faces. Yep, they lay their egg right on the bare rock. There's, there's no nest. And the reason for that is that guillemots nest at incredible densities. I mean, I've recorded them at densities up to 70 per square meter. And this is a bird that's basically the size of a chicken. They're packed in together. And that packing in together is their defense against predatory ravens and gulls. That's their breeding strategy to maximize the chances of successfully producing um, a chick. 
Tim Burkett, in your research, you've been curious about the fact that with this amazing bird and this amazing way it breeds and lives, its eggs are probably the most beautiful eggs of the whole bird kingdom. And every guillemot mother lays a totally different color and pattern of egg. And every year, the egg she lays has the same color and pattern. And we're, we're not just talking, you know, a little bit different brown colors. We're talking blues. And well, what are the colors of guillemot eggs? Well, they can be um, white with black markings, white with red markings. They could be light blue, dark blue, um, vibrant green turquoise. And um, the rarest eggs of all are kind of basically brick red. Uh, so there's incredible variation. So the variation uh, consists of both the ground color and the type and color of, of markings and the kind of density of markings around the egg. So I'm trying to write with a pen on an eggshell. It's, it's kind of hard. It doesn't really work. But, but the reason I'm trying to do it is because some of these eggs even have squiggle patterns on them. Yeah. Well, I call that penciling. So if you'd used a pencil or a felt-tip pen, that would have worked really well. That is absolutely remarkable because if you look at those penciling patterns, it's really hard to imagine how they're applied to the egg. And this is yet another area where our understanding of the biology is incredibly limited. Okay, I found a pencil with lead. And look, it does... Wait, I have to put this where you can see it through Skype. Yeah. Oh, they're perfect. Yes. yes. Okay, yeah, so, yeah. so you can make little squiggle marks. But, yeah. you know, I'm not inside of the uterus of a chicken trying to do this at, you know, there aren't any hands and pencils inside the uterus of a chicken making very exact squiggle marks. How do they do this? We don't really know, but there are special cells that um, secrete or make the colors. Then the color is squirted onto the egg. And I liken it to a set of spray guns. And there must be lots and lots of different spray guns. Some that do the ground color so that you end up with a very uniform ground color. And others that do uh, speckles or spots or blotches. The whole thing's remarkable. There are two reasons why it's difficult to study. First of all, chickens don't lay marked eggs, so nobody's bothered to look at it. Quail eggs are now becoming increasingly popular, so people are starting to study quail eggs, and quail produce blotchy eggs, so there's, uh, in the future we'll probably know how those colours applied. But it implies that the egg must be uh, moving in a very sophisticated way in the uterus when those colours are applied. Now, the reason why it's very difficult to study is that it seems that the cells that make the colour make the colour moments before the colour is applied. And after the colour is applied, those cells just look like any other cell. So it, it's a very elusive process. Boy, talk about fresh paint. <laughs> and it's just squirted on in little tiny bits, just little squirt, 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 which actually you explain is the way probably that the calcium shell is made too. It's just very carefully squirted on by these little, you call them paint can squirters, or I picture yeah. like a, a toothpaste, you know, something where it just gets squeezed a little bit at a time and it's tiny. So there's the fascinating part about how it's made, but then there's the fascinating part about the impact of what that color means. There are several main ideas about why eggs are colored. So most reptile eggs, all reptile eggs in fact, are white. So there's no, no color on them. But birds' eggs can be white, but often beautifully colored. And it's thought that the main um, driving force has been brood parasitism. The exploitation by, uh, in North America, it would be a cowbird. In Britain, it would probably be a, a cuckoo. Oh, that's those awful birds that sneak into a hardworking bird's nest. And when they're away, they lay an egg there, and then they hurry off. And that egg 
hatches first, and that little baby pushes the other babies out. And so another mother raises that baby for that vile bird. <laughs> well, you could call it a vile bird. It's just a product of natural selection. But of course, if you're the host species, the last thing you want is to be parasitized. Or if you are parasitized, what you really want is to be able to distinguish your egg from the parasite's egg. And so one way you could do that is to produce um, different colored eggs if different species produce different colored eggs. And that means that the chances of recognizing a dumped egg that's come from another bird is increased. And if you notice that there's a difference, then as a parent bird, you can say, okay, well, I'm chucking that one out. But of course, that then results in what we call an arms race. So it then um, is advantageous for the brood parasite to produce an egg that mimics those of the host. So that it makes it harder and harder. So there is this arms race going on where the brood parasite is trying to make its eggs more and more similar to the host. The host is trying to refine its recognition process, uh, and so it goes on and on. Now, I can do that with my brain and drawing on a piece of paper. I could draw different things. If I had a counterfeit artist who was always trying to make my signature or draw something the way that I do. But how do you do that if it's inside a bird's box? How does this happen? Okay, so basically you would ha have a lot of variation. Um, in the say let's say the host's eggs and one particular bird whose eggs are uh, very distinct from the brood parasite um, has the advantage that it can then chuck out the brood parasite's eggs then you're going to be the one that produces offspring that survive into next generations that's tim burkhead speaking with us from europe via skype Burkhead teaches animal behavior in the history of science at the University of Sheffield, England. His newest book is just now available. It's called The Most Perfect Thing, Inside and Outside a Bird's Egg. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. I'm the executive producer, and I produced this week's show. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Edvar Grieg. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Shelley Schlender. <laughs>